If you've been with us for the last uh, three weeks, you know we're looking at um, the significance of Jerusalem, not only in the lives of the people of the Old Testament and the New, but also in, in our own lives. You know, there is a, a divide in um, uh, teaching and preaching. There's really a divide in uh, theological studies. And you see it in the scriptures. There are so many people that want to just talk about the things that we need to do as believers. Just give me the two or three take-home points. Just give me the do's. The Lord never does that without giving us first a picture of himself. The way he described that in theology is God always gives us the indicative, what he's done for us. And then, therefore, how you should live. In other words, God always gives us a picture of himself and we're so caught up in that picture and in him that we will naturally then work out those things that he brings our way. Nowhere is that clearer than when you look at the city of Jerusalem. We've looked at Abraham and we've looked at his call to ministry. We've looked at Jesus' promise to him. We've looked at Jesus or God's proof to him. And this morning we're going to look at a very famous uh, passage of Scripture that we would all do well to not only read but to meditate on. And it's Genesis 22 that is a perfect description of what will happen there. A hundred years, thousand years, two thousand years later. Chapter 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. The Lord said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. So Abram rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. He took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they went both of them together. And so Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they both went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, Here I am. 
He said, do not lay your hand on your boy or, any, or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. The woman writes from Senegal. One night we worked round the clock to save the life of this mother who was about to deliver her first or second child. We did everything we could think of. We, did, we made our best effort and nothing worked. The little baby was born, but she died. The little baby was two pounds. She had a two-year-old sister. The little preemie was so small and so unable to care for itself. We had no incubator. We had no special feeding equipment. We had no electricity. And even though we were on the equator, it gets cool at night. And so I sent one of the midwives to the storage room to get a hot water bottle and she came back and she said the last one had burst. I didn't know what to do. So I said to that midwife, here's what you do. Build a fire. Lay that baby as close as is safe to that fire and then I want you to lay down next to her so that there's no draft. I left that place, went to my little hut, house. I tried to sleep. I couldn't sleep all night. I was tossing and turning, worried about that baby. The following day, I went and checked on her. She was still alive taking some food, formula. And I didn't want to do it, but it was my custom. Every Wednesday at noon, I'd go over to the orphanage and I'd pray with the children. And so, not knowing what to do, I went over and I gathered them together and I said, hey, before we pray, I have something to tell you. There's a little baby born yesterday and she's so small she might die unless she's kept warm and we don't have any hot water bottles. You see, her mother died. And she has a little two-year-old sister who's crying her eyes out because she misses her mommy. So we started to pray. And suddenly a ten-year-old named Ruth began to pray. Oh Lord, please send us a hot water bottle now. Tomorrow it's no good. We need it now. The baby is going to die without it. And I thought to myself, why did I tell them that? Why did I sanction such a prayer? I'd been there for four years. We never received any package. 
And I knew that the only way we could get a hot water bottle if it, it was if it came from home, and who would send a hot water bottle to the equator? And then she continued, and Lord, while you're at it, how about a little baby doll for the two-year-old so she knows she's loved? Again, the guilt came right back. How could I be so dumb to prompt that kind of prayer? The hours passed. I was teaching a class at four o'clock that same day. And I was interrupted. The message came that there is a car at your hut. In four years, there had never been a car at my hut. And so I excused myself and I ran toward my hut and the car was gone, but there was a big 22-pound box right by my door. So I sent for the children They immediately came and unwrapped the wrapping and they dove into the box and right on top of that box were three dozen brightly colored jerseys and they began to pass them out. Under the jerseys were bandages, large bars of soap, a box of raisin and nuts. Then I put my hand further in and I felt something that was rubber. And I pulled it out and Ruth said, there's the hot water bottle, where's the doll baby? And she dove into the box. And she came out with a little doll, small, beautifully dressed. By this time, I couldn't control myself. Tears were streaming down my face. But I was able to check one thing on that box. The postal mark. It had been sent five months to that day. Years ago in Philadelphia, a man by the name of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, one of my mentors, told about a man who wanted to learn how to play the violin. So instead of taking lessons, he went to the music store, bought a violin, a music stand, and some scores of music, and a radio. The next day was Sunday, and he tuned to the public broadcasting station that carried the Philadelphia Orchestra. And they had announced it earlier in the week that they would be playing Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. So he put the score of music on the music stand, turned on the radio, took the violin and got it ready. And as the music started, he began to play. And in 45 minutes, he hit five notes. He wasn't discouraged. The next day, they were playing another piece of music. He knew that when he bought it. This time he hit 10 notes. And over time, the right notes began to outweigh the bad notes. And Barnhouse said, that's what prayer is like. Effective prayer is tuning into the plan and purposes of God that are like that music. They are moving forward 
Now think of those children in Senegal. When they heard that the mother was dead and the premature baby was going to die and the two-year-old was crying her eyes out, Ruth got specific. And she tuned in to the plan of God. He, she tuned into what God intended to do. And when that package arrived, having been sent five months earlier to the very day, and they opened it, it not only saved the life of a baby and brightened the day of everyone, it also built their faith. And if you don't believe that, then it is impossible to understand the life of Abraham. It's hard to make any sense out of it. Two weeks ago, we talked about him being 80. He goes on a war campaign, a military campaign. He defeats with 318 other men. He defeats five kings and their armies. He was turning home to Hebron. He comes to a place where the king of righteousness... The king of the city of God comes out, meets him, eats with him, and blesses him. In other words, at age 80, he meets God. He meets the pre-incarnate Christ. We looked all through that. Ten years later, he's in the throes of depression. And the reason he's in despair is because God promises him, he's promised him over ten years ago that he would have his own son, he and Sarah. And to this point, they don't have a son. And so in essence, he says to the Lord, prove it, and the Lord does. Remember what he does? He says, I want you to take five animals, I want you to cut three of them in half, and I want you to lay them on separate altars, and then when it got dark... The Lord passed through those pieces in a figure eight. He cut a covenant with Abraham. Remember, only God walked through, not Abraham. And basically what God is saying is, let what happened to those animals happen to me if I don't keep my word to you. And ten years later, Isaac is born. Remember what Isaac means? He laughed. She laughed. He laughed. Everybody laughed. A hundred-year-old father and a 90-year-old mother. But that's not the end of the story. When you come to chapter 22, Abraham is somewhere between 125 and 130. 25 or 30 years have gone by. And the Lord says to Abram, Abraham, living 40 miles south of the place where he met with Melchizedek, living in a place called Beersheba, which means a place of seven wells, he says, I want you to take Isaac, I want you to take your son, your only son, the one whom you love, and I want you to go to the land of Moriah, and there I want you to offer him as a burnt offering to me on one of the mountains that I will show you. Now there are scholars who say this is proof positive that you should give up on the God of the Old Testament. 
How can a loving God command a father to go and sacrifice his son like this? One famous theologian says this is an impossible ethic. Soren Kierkegaard, the famous Dutch Danish philosopher and theologian, was so struck with the emotional brutality that the Lord imposes upon Abraham. When I was in seminary in Princeton, I noted a number of my colleagues hated the story. They couldn't conceive of a God who would say to anyone, especially Abraham, offer up your son. But all of those perspectives missed the point. While the words of verse 1 cause many to focus on God's test of Abraham, the classic mistake is to stay there. There is another who is tested here. And that test is far more significant than the test of Abraham. And that's the test of God Himself. And nowhere is that clear, that test... Then in verse 14, when the Bible says, So Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. You know what that is in Hebrew? Jehovah Jireh. The reason Abraham calls this place the place where God provides is because he recognizes that this is the place where God passes the test. And when we begin to unpack it, you will see the significance in your own life. First, notice how God provides. Look at verses 1 and 2. After these things, God tested Abraham. Abraham, he said, here I am. The Lord said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah. Offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. You know something? For decades... When I was growing up, I heard this story, I read this story, and I I know I don't have a perfect memory, but I know I didn't hear this. Nobody ever talked about what a burnt offering is. Do you know that a burnt offering is different than any other offering in in the Scriptures? There's peace offerings and cereal offerings, there's all kinds of offerings. The Lord says, I want you to take your son, your only son, and go to the land of Moriah, and I want you to offer him as a burnt offering. You see, every other offering, what the priest would do would be to sacrifice the animal and then drain its blood. And then offer that blood as a sacrifice. Burning it up. You say, what happened to the meat? People would eat it. Take a perfectly fine animal, actually without spot, blemish, sacrifice it, drain the blood, burn that blood to the Lord, eat the meat. Not with a burnt offering. You sacrifice the animal, you drained its blood, and then you burnt the entire thing until it was there was nothing left. You know what the Lord's saying to him? I want you to take Isaac, your only son, the one you love, I want you to kill him and burn him. 
I want there to be nothing left of him. Take the son I promised you. The son you've lived for. The son for 50 or more years you've desired. The son you love and I want you to take him. And to show you how tough God is, he says, I want you to take, you, take him to a mountain in the land of Moriah. That's 40 miles away. Three and a half days journey. So think of what the Lord's doing to him. He tells him, here's my command, and I want you to do it. It's going to take you four days to get there to do it. Ever been to the doctor and didn't think you'd get a shot? You have to get a shot? A little pinch. They lie. A little pinch. But you don't have to wait very long to get it. Here the Lord says, I want you to take your own son. I want you to kill him. I want you to burn his body so there's nothing left. And guess what? You got to go four days and you got to think about it. That's why Soren Kierkegaard said, this is intolerable. Second, notice the where. Where he provides. Look at verse 2. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. Now the word Moriah means God chooses. In the Bible, names mean things. And and so you ask yourself, what's this mean? God chooses. God chooses what? He chooses the sacrifice. He chooses the day. He chooses the servant. He chooses the place. I love what the Bible says. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw the place. You know why it says it that way? Because he's been there before. He's traveled 40 miles. He's had to traverse territory that goes actually more than 2,000 feet in elevation. The guy's 125 or 30 years old. Even then that was old. And he lifts up his eyes and he sees the place. And the reason he sees the place and he knows the place is that's exactly the same place where Melchizedek met him. It's exactly the same place where the Lord had said, if I don't keep my promises to you, may I be cut in half like one of those animals. It's also the place a thousand years later where David will be coronated as king of Israel. It's also the same place on which David's son Solomon will build the temple. And 2,000 years after Abraham, it's the same place where that curtain in the temple will be torn in two when Jesus said, it is finished. It's exactly the same place. Third, notice the what, what he provides. Look at verse 7. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And Abraham said, here I am, my son. He said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? You know, Isaac's 25 or 30 years old. I never heard that when I was a kid either. I used to feel sorry for him because he had to carry the wood. A little kid carrying all that wood. He's no kid. He's a man. He knows what a burnt offering is. 
He knows that a burnt offering first has its blood drained, and then the entire body is burned. He knows why the blood's drained. Because he knows the gravity of human sin. And so he says to his father, where's the lamb? I mean, he got everything else. Where's the lamb? Remember Noah when he comes out of the ark? What's he do? He sacrifices. What kind of sacrifice? A burnt offering. You say, did he take one or two of those animals? Remember, two by two, they went into the ark? Ah, Every animal except sacrificial animals. Then he took seven pairs of those. Because he knew that if he ever got through this flood, he would need to thank the Lord and know that it's not his doing, it's the Lord's doing. So he took seven pairs of sacrificial animals. And Isaac knows that. And that's why he says, Father, where's the lamb? Fourth, notice the when, when the Lord provides. Look at verse 9. When they came to the place where God had told him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now there's two pieces of timing here that are critical. The first piece of timing is, as I've mentioned, Isaac is not a little adolescent boy. He's 25 or 30 years old. Do you know what that means? He could have overpowered his father. He could have decked his dad. At any minute, he had the power to overpower his father. But instead, he submits. He is willing to lay down his life in obedience. I mean, that's powerful. Then there's a second piece of timing. Notice when the Lord intervenes. Remember when Jesus did his first miracle? Turning wine into, or water into wine at a wedding. When did he do it? After the wine ran out. Remember the woman who was bleeding for 11 years? She spent all of her money. She went to all of her doctors. She had nothing left. When did he heal her? When she had nothing left. How about Lazarus? When does, she, when does he come to see his friend after he's dead? In every one of those cases, the Lord waits until we've come to the end of our own abilities, the end of our resources, the end of any prospect of change. When does the Lord provide? When does He stop the knife? Right before it's thrust into His Son. Why? So that we might know this. Unless God does it, it can't be done. And then fifth and finally, notice the why of the provision. Look at verse 13. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Now let me ask you something. Why does God stop Abraham from killing his son? Why does God intervene? 
You say, well, that's easy. The Bible tells us the angel of the Lord stops him and says, now I know that you fear God. In other words, Abraham, you passed the test. That's only part of the answer. In fact, if you only know that part of the answer, you will believe a lie, and that is that Abraham was somehow Mr. Super Spiritual. And you'll go out of here and you'll say, we have to be just like Abraham. We have to be willing to lay down anything for the Lord. Moralism. Now, there's something to be said about that, but that's not the gospel. If you come out of here and say, I just need to be like Abraham, fat chance. You go knock yourself out. And if you're really serious, you'll be like Luther and you'll almost want to pick up a knife and thrust it into your own chest. There's a far greater reason why the Lord stopped him. Think of it, the, lamb, the, the ram was caught in the thicket. Why is he there? Why does the Lord have a ram get thought, caught in a thicket? That didn't happen every day. Why did he have a, a thicket be right there? Why? You say, so Abraham would have something to offer to the Lord instead of his son. That's right. Because Abraham knew the gravity of sin. He knew that his sin had to be atoned for. That's why he takes the ram and offers it. He gives him a substitute. Abraham knows that an offering is necessary. Something has to die. A holy God demands perfection. A holy God alone can provide the sacrifice. So he gives him a substitute. But then there's another question. Why a ram and not a lamb? Remember three and a half days earlier, Isaac had said to his father, where's the lamb? The father had said, the Lord will provide. Now what did Abraham mean? He meant the Lord would provide. Now the writer of Hebrews said he believed that the Lord would resurrect him if he killed him. Not only resurrect him, but have to bring all that incinerated bones and skin back together. Abraham had no idea it would be a ram and not a lamb. So why a ram? Because in all of human history, there's only one time when a perfect lamb is offered and he's the perfect son. And it's at the same place. The reason the angel of the Lord stops Abraham from killing Isaac is because he knows that in all of human history, in all of the descendants of Abraham to ever be born, there's only one father who will provide a perfect lamb and that lamb will be his only begotten son. You know, years ago I used to listen to people feeling sorry for Abraham, like Kierkegaard. After all, he's an old man. He waited a hundred years for this boy. Who does God think he is? To make him go for three and a half or four days before he has to kill his son and then burn his body. What kind of God would do it? You know the answer to that question. An everlasting father 
who didn't have three or four days to think about what he'd do to his son. He had all of eternity to think of it. He knew that there was coming a time on that same spot where he would not only have his son crucified, but he'd burn him in the fires of hell. Abraham had three days to think about it, four maybe. He had to think about the fire and the knife. Our God had, before the beginning of time, to know that there would be a time when there wouldn't just be a knife, there'd be a cross. There wouldn't just be physical fire, there'd be the fire of hell. God stopped Abraham, but he never stopped himself. You want to feel sorry for somebody? Feel sorry for a God who gave everything for you. It was more than a burnt offering. It was an everlasting, universal sacrifice. He substituted himself for you. Do you think Jerusalem matters? It's the only place in all eternity and all of human history where God has provided everything that you and I need, not not only to live eternally, but to live this life the way it's meant to be lived, with a focus on all that he's done. You read Paul. You read John. You read Peter. You read James. They never get to how you should live without first saying, here's what the Lord's done for you. What you do is simply an outgrowth of where your eyes are fixed. Think about that. Amen.